So, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. I got to start wearing a blazer more often to get this type of reception. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming out today. Uh, we are really grateful and honored that you cho have chosen Renaissance. Uh, there's a lot of really amazing things happening here uh, as a community. Uh, I don't always talk about my own personal faith story and how I came to faith because I know most people's experiences is not my experience. Um, there's a lot of different ways in which people have real and genuine uh, coming to Jesus moments or seasons uh, where they embrace faith. But for me, when I became a Christian, I remember the day, the minute, and the hour. I was in college, and I showed up at a Bible study. And as I was sitting in the Bible study, uh, we were going through scriptures, and I didn't know what was happening to me then. But the best way I know how to describe it was almost that like someone with really poor vision just got a perfect prescription of, of glasses to put on. And then in an instant, everything just made sense. Everything just became so much more clearer, who Jesus was, who I was, my need for Jesus, like just all hit me like a ton of bricks. That night, I went back to my dorm room and I was overwhelmed by a whole flood of emotions. And I remember praying on my dorm room floor that I just want everyone to know Jesus. For the last 20 years, that's been the cry of my heart. I don't care how it happens, I just want everyone to know Jesus. Now, I've had a lot of high highs in those 20 years, and I've had a lot of very disappointing lows. And a lot of time, just in the middle, where I didn't know what was going on. But one thing has remained, that I wanted everyone, as much as possible, just to know Jesus and to grow in their faith. Now, ever since Renaissance first started over five years ago, that has been our mission from day one, to connect people to Jesus Christ and to each other. And we hoped and we dreamed and we prayed that we would be a community where people found Jesus and grew in their faith and connected with other people who were doing the same thing. Uh, we committed to strip down all of the fluff so that it would be no fluff, just a healthy dose of Jesus and a gospel-centered community. Now, what I didn't know was going to happen was that you guys would be inviting people left and right. Uh, Renaissance has become, for many of you, hopefully, a family, a place where uh, whether you're black, white, Korean, Puerto Rican, whether you root for the Yankees or the other team, that, <laughs> that Renaissance is home and you invite people left and right. Now, there's no uh, problem with marketing campaigns, but that's not necessarily what we do or have done. We just relied on our community of people to invite their friends, and you guys have done it so much that we have encountered a good problem. We have run out of space. So, yes. Uh, so on Sunday, April 5th, we are launching our third service here at Renaissance. Yes. And we've had a lot of conversations about what the best time is. Um, and for right now, we've decided that 9.30, uh, which you're not going to come to, 11, <laughs> or 12.30. And hopefully some of you guys would come to the first one as well. Uh, but we're hoping that this would relieve some of the pressure that we have here at Renaissance so we can continue to invite more people into this life-changing relationship with Jesus in this community. So, yes. So I am grateful for the enthusiasm and the applause, uh, but what I really need from you guys is uh, we're, we're looking for more volunteers so that we can make sure that our volunteer culture remains healthy. 
One of my primary goals as a leader is that we have a healthy volunteer culture that we are not burning people out. So we primarily need people in two areas. Number one is in our kids department. Um, yes, and our kids team is the best team here at Renaissance. Uh, they deal with my kids, which is uh, in and of itself a grace. Uh, and uh, so we need kids volunteers, and this, is, this goes from, from babies to middle school. And if you're not even really into kids like that, we're also looking for people to do our check-in station to help parents uh, get their kids to their stations. And we're also looking for more people to serve in our first impressions crew. Yes. I don't know if you've ever, if you remember what it feels like to walk into the church for the first time and how daunting it is. And some of you guys have experienced that today and you don't know where to turn. And then you just find and meet a friendly face who welcomes you in. And man, that does a lot for people. So uh, for our kids and for our first impressions and for other areas as well, we're looking for more volunteers. And you can do that in a couple of ways. You can commit today. Um, and on a connection card uh, in service and drop it off in room 134, or you can come to the crew fair on March 15th. And we're really hoping and, and praying that we would get 40 new volunteers from both of our services to make sure that we are relieving all the pressure from our volunteer department. Now, this is especially true for people who have signed up at once upon a time, and maybe you signed up for kids and you say, you know what, I didn't really want to do that, and I kind of fell through the cracks, but now I want to do first impressions. I want to do. Uh, um, a setup or whatever it is that you wanted to do, uh, we're, we're welcoming you back in to be able to serve with us, and we're trusting that God is going to do something powerful in this third service. So let me pray for the service that we're doing and also for this time right now. Uh, God, our good and gracious Father, uh, I'm so grateful just for how you are alive and you bring life to us, and that life is contagious. And God, I just pray for the works of our hands and our plans. Uh, Lord, that it doesn't just stop with us, but that we trust that you are breathing on this and, and leading us in this direction. So, Lord, would you just continue to bless, pour out your spirit, uh, do things, uh, give us life and maturity and all the things that we want. And, Lord, I pray for this time right now that it will be helpful and uh, we would hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the last couple of months we've been in the Gospel of John, and uh, we're starting today a little mini-series in the Gospel of John based on seven statements that Jesus made, commonly referred to the I am statements. So in the Gospel of John, seven times, Jesus makes a statement that says, I am this. Now, what I've learned over the years is that you can know a lot about someone and not know them. Like, you can know a lot about where they work, how much money they make, uh, are they single in a relationship or a situationship. Uh, <laughs> It's cuffing season, y'all. Come on. <laughs> but you really don't know someone until they reveal who they are to you. Uh, the past couple of months, I've been in a group uh, full of guys, and we've gotten a chance to know each other more and more. And over the last couple of weeks, I've had some really great conversations with some of these brothers. And some of it is profound to me how much uh, I get to learn about someone when I spend time one-on-one -on -one with them and hear their story, hear their life, and dig beneath the surface. And I hope the same is true that as I'm sharing my life with them, they know who I am more than the Jordan that's on stage. Now, there is a piece to someone that you can know, but you can't really know them until they reveal who they are. And when they reveal who they are, you and I should listen. Not only should we listen, but we should suspend our previous belief of what they are and just listen to what they say, who they are. So in these statements, Jesus is making 
uh, seven statements, and he's revealing to us who he really is. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to spend time paying attention, listening to who he is from his own mouth, from his own words. Now, it's really interesting that as we look at this concept of I am and these statements that Jesus is making, uh, we have to first understand uh, how profound that statement in and of itself is. And before we get to the part about what he says he is, just those two words, I am, means so much. It actually goes back to the book of Exodus. And uh, when Jesus says, I am, he actually says uh, two phrases, which are ego, a me, which is repeated and basically is I am, I am. And it sounds redundant when you read it, particularly if you read it in the Greek. But what Jesus is doing here is he is signaling something. This goes back to Exodus uh, when Moses, a man named Moses, was having a conversation with God. Moses was a leader in Israel, and God's people, the, the children of Israel, were in slavery in Egypt, and they had been for about 400 years. God comes to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses says, God, I'm going to let you finish, but real quick, uh, <laughs> who should I tell him sent me? God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, I am that I am. Now, when Jesus says, I am, in this context, He's revealing something about his nature that if we miss this, you miss all of Christianity. What Jesus is teaching here is that he is not just a mere teacher that has come to teach us good things. He's not just God's son that has come to die for our sins. Jesus here is saying that he himself is God. Now, Christian theology teaches a lot of things which are hard to comprehend. Uh, and this one is a concept called the Trinity, that God exists equally in different persons. And by Jesus saying, uh, I am, I am, ego, a me, basically what he's saying is, I am God that has come down. And I'm coming down to show you what God is like. Later in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says it like this, that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Meaning, if you want to get a picture of what God is like, look at Jesus. So Jesus says, ego, a me, uh, I am that I am. And this is something that is vital to Christianity because if you miss this, you'll misunderstand all of what Christianity is and what it offers. Uh, I was having a conversation a couple years ago with a friend, and they were confessing, saying, you know what, Jordan, I, I really do struggle with the concept of the crucifixion, that ever since I've become a parent, it's just like kind of messed up that you would let your son die like that. Like, I'm a loving parent, and I wouldn't let my kid die, not for some of these jokers out here. And like, how could God be loving, all loving and all knowing, and he just like let his son die? That just kind of seems messed up. Essentially, they missed out on this piece right here of what Jesus is saying. The crucifixion of the I am that I am is, is not that God just sent just his son to die, but that rather God himself appeared in the flesh. As it says in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word in verse 14, it says, that word made his dwelling among us. God himself from all eternity has come down and appeared to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the God that has gone to the cross for us. So it's not that God just sent his son to die on the cross, but God himself was going to the cross for us. And that changes everything about who God is and what it means to be in relationship with him. I mentioned this during our anniversary service in September, but a couple years ago I was watching a, document, a documentary on uh, my HBO Go account also known as my parents' HBO Go account. <laughs> I have the passwords. Um, 
And um, I, I stumbled over this documentary called The Witness, and it was a, a really interesting documentary about a woman named Kitty Genovese who was living in Kew Gardens in the 1960s. And it's a documentary about a woman who was attacked, but it's about so much more than her being attacked. This one is really, truly about those who witnessed it. So this woman was walking home one day, and as she got close to her apartment, she was attacked, and she screamed for help. And a couple of lights went on in neighboring apartments. A couple of people um, looked down on her, but nobody came down. Uh, the attacker, realizing that nobody had come down, came back a few minutes later and stabbed her and killed her. Now, the documentary is all about the witnesses and why didn't anybody come down. They saw it, they heard it, but nobody came down. They didn't come down because to come down makes yourself vulnerable. Uh, it's easy to stay in your apartment and turn on a light or to scream something while you remain in safety, but to come down means that you yourself risk your life. What the incarnation of Jesus, what Jesus coming to earth means for us is that God, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, heard our cries, saw our sins, saw our separation, and he himself put himself in peril to come down. That is the gospel message. God put on flesh, came down, and Jesus stood in our place to save us. Now, this is the profound nature of the gospel and what we're getting into today, taking a look at who Jesus says he is. And the teaching that he gives us for today uh, starts with this concept of who he is and his identity. The, the first part of, or the first saying in this I Am series that we're looking at today is, um, as you can probably tell from those of you who are paying attention, that I am the bread of life. Uh, so Jesus makes a statement. Uh, he says, I am the bread of life. Now, this means at least two things uh, and many more things, but he's pointing to the fact that as people, it is our universal nature that we get hungry. It's a physical thing that shows a spiritual reality. As people, you and I are not self-sufficient, that multiple times a day we need, to, we need to eat or else we will experience hunger pains and we'll feel like we are wasting away. We are dependent people. We are not independent God might be self-sufficient, but we are not. We are people that Jesus is saying, you need something outside of you to sustain you. You do not have life in and of yourself to sustain yourself. My wife and I, one of my favorite habits and practices in New York City is we love to ear hustle on people's dates. And they put the table so close together that I'm like, they want me to listen to what's going on. <laughs> And uh, one of my favorite things to do in listening is to guess, guess what date they're on in, the, in their relationship. You could always tell the couple that just started dating. He's like, no, no, it's, it's great. This is, you know. When my wife and I first started dating, we would go to the restaurant and the waiter would say, do you need more time? I would look at Jess and say, hey, do you, do you need more time? Is that, waiter, come back in 10 minutes. She's still, she's still deciding. I'm just enjoying the view right in front of me. Now I text her the message, the menu on the train, like, yo, listen. When we get there, know what you want, because I'm hungry. We'll get there. She's like, I don't know if I want the shrimp or the pasta. I'm like, yo, do you want shrimp? Yes or no? It's shrimp. They don't cook it many ways. Do you want shrimp? Yes or no? When I get hungry, I get, I get pretty hangry, right? I get, yes, we got some more hangry people in the, in, who are willing to own that. Now, our bodies, when we're hangry or hungry, our bodies are signifying to us a, a deep reality that you and I need other things that are outside of us to sustain us. 
Spiritually, that reality is equally powerful. And what Jesus is saying by calling himself the bread of life is he's saying that you and I need something and that he himself is the perfect fulfillment of that something. Secondly, what he's saying is that he himself is, is life. And uh, the challenge is that you and I, uh, we like to think of ourselves as more independent than what we truly are. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as sophisticated people who might need God to give us a little bit more clarity about one or two things, but to not see ourselves as totally uh, dependent. And we were made to live in a worshipful, uh, humble dependency on God and with others. But something happened to us early way, all the way back to our first and earliest ancestors. Uh, we were tempted to believe a lie that you and I could be on the same level as God. The enemy, some of you guys don't believe in the devil because you're sophisticated people. Uh, the, the, the devil comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, like, you don't have to depend on what God says. Like, you don't have to like, live by his restrictions. Like, you can be just like God. What is God? God is self-sufficient. God needs nothing outside of himself. They bought into that lie because you and I have this thing about us where we are tempted to believe that we are more self-sufficient than what we truly are. Jesus calls, us, calls himself the bread of life, and he's pointing to this reality that you and I need something. We are not independent. And generally speaking, it is not your weakness that will get you into, into uh, trouble, but rather your delusions of strength. It is not your weaknesses that, got, that offends God. You being weak and needing help, that, is not offend, that does not offend God at all. What offends God is our delusions of strength and independence. Uh, I think about this a lot in my own life. Um, I was reading a scripture in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul says something that is just mind-boggling. He says, all the more I boast in my weaknesses and hardships and persecutions, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And as I think about that in my own life, how many times I try to be independently strong, what I'm doing is I'm pushing away the power of God that's available to my life, the bread of life that is available to me. Here's the problem. This happens to us at an early age in life. Anybody with small children, uh, you know this. Once they learn that word no, it's going to continue for the rest of their existence. What are they doing? They're wrestling for independence, to do it their way. Uh, you and I are dependent people that um, do not have strength and sustenance in and of ourselves. Jesus is also saying that he himself does have that, though, that he does have the answers, and he himself is that life-sustaining force. In John 5 and 26, Jesus, it says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also has he granted the Son to have life in himself. What this scripture is saying is that uh, God himself needs nothing outside of God. He doesn't need anything, but you and I are certainly uh, not that. So Jesus is saying that he's the bread of life because we need it and he has it. Uh, and what this really is hoping, what I'm hoping to do, accomplish with this is that you and I would do what the prophet Kendrick Lamar once said is to sit down and to be humble. <laughs> that we would humbly say, God, I need you. I need you. Like not just for a little bit more clarity, but God, I am completely and totally dependent on you. Not just once a once-off thing, but continually over and over again. So uh, we're going to start off looking at Jesus' statement here in John 6. It starts off in verses 26 and 27. And Jesus is having a conversation, and it says, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So right at the bat, right at the gate, uh, we see this first verse that we're looking at. 
And this is coming right after Jesus fed uh, more than 5,000 people. And Jesus is telling them, this crowd of people who have come to him, to look at their motivations. He's saying, you're not coming to me because, like, you want me. You saw the signs and you believe in me. You're coming to me because uh, I filled your stomach earlier. I did what you wanted me to do, and now you're coming again for me to do something else for you. I think that the more you really take an honest look at your life, one of the things that we try to encourage over and over again is to take a good, hard look at your motivations. Like, what is it that we're truly coming to God looking for? Jesus, over and over again, stops people dead in their tracks and says, hey, this is your motivation, and it is God's grace to us that reveals to us when our motivations are off. Uh, so Jesus does that in verse 26, and in verse 27 it says, Do not, uh, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And down to verse 33, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So Jesus makes this profound statement that he is the bread of life, but what, is, what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for your life? What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? It means a number of things. Um, uh, what is the bread of life? The first thing that we see, and I want to pull out from this text, is that it is, it is real life. Now, Jesus says that he is the bread that gives not just life, but as you see in verse uh, 27, it says eternal life. And um, you can't really tell from the English translation, but in the, English, but in the Greek, the ancient Greek, uh, a, there are two different words for life. A lot of times people think about this phrase eternal life, and they think that once a, you know, one day, however many years later, you'll close your eyes for the last time and you'll die and then Jesus will welcome you into heaven. And that is a beautiful truth, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. The eternal life that he's talking about starts now. What Jesus is offering in this eternal life is life with him. And there are two different words for life in the Greek. One is bios, from which we get the term biology. And bios basically means existence. What Jesus is talking about here is not bios, that you will live on forever. Jesus is talking about a zoe, a quality of life. There's a difference between existing and actually being alive. This past Christmas break, um, I was on my couch hating and very jealous of all the people who went to Afrochella for the 400-year year of return in Ghana, and people's IG feeds were looking amazing uh, in Ghana, the sights, the sounds, the parties, Afrochella, the food, the, the deep culture and connection to the 400 years ago, the first slave ships I left there, and it looked like one of the most amazing times ever. I was on my couch with a sinus infection, uh, watching Sesame Street for the 238th time. <laughs> Both of us were bios existing, but only one of us was living, Zoe living. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is that what he's offering to us is Zoe. It's life. It's real life, better than anything you can have on your own. But there's a temptation for us to believe that what we can do on our own is better than what God has to offer to us. Now, this is vital to, uh, for us to get that what Jesus is offering us is real Zoe because we're always constantly tempted to think that the path that you and I think is best is actually best. I was talking to one of my buddies years ago about his life and his faith, and he was telling me, you know what? I kind of want to take a step closer to, in faith, and I want to really embrace 
this Jesus for myself, but I just don't want my life to be miserable. And he was thinking that once he became a Christian, God was going to ship him off to some remote country somewhere to be a missionary, or that his life would just be all about the things that he can't do anymore, and that he would just be miserable. And a lot of people have that understanding, but that's not, that's not Zoe life. That's not what Jesus is, is offering. He's not saying, come follow me, and I'll make you miserable. He's saying, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Now, a lot of you would never say it as explicitly as my friend said it years ago, but many of us, whether or not we acknowledge it or whether or not we know this consciously, we believe that the path that Jesus offers to us is worse. I'm not saying better or more difficult. I'm saying we believe that the path in our brain of what we can do and the things that we want right in front of us right now, that it's really life, that if I get these things, man, then that's going to be truly living. You know this to be true of you if uh, you really struggle to embrace God's limitations on your life. Right now, there's a whole host of people who have, for one reason or another, different limitations, whether it's in finances, relationship stage, things that you really wanted. And in your brain, you know this is true, that you start to almost develop a resent for God for not giving you what you wanted. What is that? What's underneath that? It's this belief that what I can picture for myself is better than what God himself is offering me. Jesus is Zoe. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am Zoe. I am abundance. I am real life. And so many times we we depend on false Zoes to give us security and significance to make us feel like we're really truly living. And Lord knows I have them. Uh, There's so many different things that on a a day-to-day basis I think will make me significant. And once I get them, they don't give me that significance. Jim Carrey, of all people, once said this. He said, uh, I hope that everything you ever thought about, your wildest dreams, I hope you not just accomplish them, but exceed them. Because then and only then will you realize that those things could never, ever, ever fill you. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and those who put their faith in me will never be hungry again. That what he offers is true Zoe. And the other things that we run after to give us significance, security, whatever it is that we think that we're going to want in happiness in life, those things will truly never fill us. So Jesus says, first and foremost, that he is Zoe. He is real life. Um, And when we have the temptation to believe that what we can do for ourselves is better than what God has for us, I hope we repeat the scripture to ourselves that God has come to give us real Life, real Zoe life. So number one, it's quality of life that Jesus is offering. And number two, it is personal. It's personal. The bread of life is personal. Listen to how Jesus describes himself in verses uh, 33 through 35. It says, For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. What Jesus is saying is that What he offers is not just an idea or an experience, but it's a person. It's me. Verse 33, some translations say it like this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, what I'm offering is not an idea that's going to help you structure your life a little bit better. What I'm offering is not an experience that can happen when a worship team sings your favorite song and someone sings in falsetto and they really take you out to the next level. It's not just an idea or an experience, it's a person. Now, Western religions tend to major on the ideas, the concepts, and you have all of these great philosophers who will sit around drinking coffee and debating ideas. 
Now, of course, Christianity gives us wonderful ideas that we can base our life around, but that's not what it is. Eastern religions tend to focus on the experience, that it's, it's more mystical, it's, it's more um, inquisitive, and we don't know, you can't put a, a doctrine on it, but it's something that you experience. Uh, and of course, in Christianity, there are things that you experience. I, I started off talking about today how God met me, and God meets us in our emotions, of course, but Christianity is neither an idea or an experience, it is a person. Over and over and over again, we need to be reminded about the personal nature of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus so that your relationship does not devolve into a business transaction. Because the second it devolves into a business transaction, the relationship will start to die. One of my uh, friends who I was talking to the last couple of weeks uh, has been mentioning just how rough uh, their marriage is. And they were talking about their marriage, and they said, listen, it's really, truly only now, you know, talking about business. You know, what time we have to pick the kids up? You know, you know what's in your Amazon cart? Why did you put that in there? Um, that's actually what my wife said to me this morning. But, <laughs> but their relationship has turned into a series of transactions. It's be here by 7 so that I can go to the class and you come, you know, make sure you are here by 9.30 so I can go to the gym. And it's, it's just a transaction. It's, there's no exchange of intimacy. There's no growing together. There's no deepening of affection in, in, their, in their life. And once that happens to a relationship, a relationship starts to die. What Jesus is inviting us into is not a set of rules so you can check it off and feel better about yourself. It's not an experience you get on a Sunday morning so you can go home saying, oh, now I'm set up for the week that I got my fix. It's an invitation into a relationship that deepens and continues to grow and to blossom because that is what Jesus is offering. The bread of life is he who has come down from heaven. I am the bread of life that Jesus is offering. One of my mentors uh, said it better than I ever could, so I'll just read one of his quotes about the need for this to be such a personal thing. It says, do you sense his love shed abroad in your heart? Do you get together with him just to get together with him? Do you find he reaffirms his love for you constantly and you reaffirm your love to him? In hard times, does he give you peace? Can you feel him supporting you? Does he communicate with you? Are you willing to rearrange your life to show him he is the priority? Because after all, look at how he rearranged his life to show you what you mean and meant to him. Do you have a personal relationship or is he a mystical experience? Is the bread of life a mystical experience to you? Is it a set of rules? Or is he a he? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Now, if you want to know what it means even today, what it looks like to have a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, we would love to start that conversation with you. My brother Kevin will be down here at the front, and we'll also have our baptism class after so you guys can start that conversation of what that looks like. But, man, I, I, for nothing else, if you got nothing else, do not leave here for one second thinking that the goal of what Jesus wants to do in your life is to give you a better set of rules to adhere to or to give you a more intense emotional experience. All of these things are good. There are things. There is a way you should live your life. This is not just removing all things, all boundaries. There are good experiences with God, but it is primarily a person that, he, that invites us into a relationship with him. And that relationship should be deepening and growing when we focus on him and as he presents himself to us. So it's real life, it's personal, and number three, it's, it's broken. Now Jesus doesn't just say that he's a person. He said, the bread of heaven is not just a person, 
It is a, a broken person. And this is a pretty fine distinction, so I need you to stick with me for a second. Later on, Jesus says, the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, Jesus saying his, the bread of life is his flesh and that I'll give for the life of the world. He's referring to his crucifixion, which is about to happen, uh, that he gives his life for the world, that on his death on the cross, he is restoring all things between us and God. Now, bread is of no value to you until it's broken. You can smell it. You can lick it. But it can't nourish you until what? Until it's broken. Until you break it and you consume it. When Jesus is claiming to be the bread of life, what he's telling us is that he is not just something to look at, to observe, but he's something to be ingested. And not just something to be ingested, but that he was broken so that you and I could take him in. He was broken on the cross for our sins. And I want you to look at a couple of scriptures here in Luke, in, uh, in verse 51 of John 6 and then later in Luke. Jesus is saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is talking about giving his life up for us. And Jesus, uh, earlier in this chapter in John 6, when he feeds the 5,000 plus people, before he distributes the bread, what does he first do? He breaks it. Later, at what's commonly referred to as the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he's talking about bread again. In Luke 22, it says, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, uh, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus here is referring to a practice of communion, but essentially what he's saying is his body for us is broken. And until you receive Jesus, not just as a good moral instructor, but as a broken savior for you, you will not be nourished. Now, if you look at Jesus just as a good teacher, all that's going to do is discourage you. Here's why. This is what it does to me. I see the life that Jesus lived, and he lived the perfect life. I see what is possible through someone who walks on this earth. And when I look at his life, just as a teacher, just as an example, it doesn't encourage me. It discourages me because I see how far beneath him I am. He is not just a teacher. He is a teacher, of course, but he is not just a teacher. He is the one who, was, who has come down and was broken for us so that our sins could be forgiven on the cross. And this is what it says in verse 51 where Jesus says, the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship with him that sees him, that remembers him, not just as a teacher, but as our, uh, our broken savior that, that has made us in God right, that has put us on good terms with God, wiped out our sins. Um, and until we get that, we cannot be nourished by him. And let's do a couple of quick case studies. I don't know if you've ever been done wrong by someone, and in our current culture, the quickest answer is just to cancel them, throw them away. Jesus tells us to forgive people, people who have done you wrong. This is not an invitation for them to do it again, but this is rather releasing the debt that they have against you. And you could either take it that, well, Jesus forgave people, so I should forgive people. But that doesn't give you any power. All you have is Jesus as an example that forgave some really unloving people. But if you take Jesus as the broken savior who was broken for you, you'll approach forgiveness in a much different way. You're, you'll approach forgiveness as, you know what, Jesus? You were broken for me so that I could be forgiven. On the cross, you were separated so I can be drawn close. 
You call me now to forgive people. I will forgive because you were broken for me. It's a much different approach that fuels us, that motivates us to live a life that is actually probably far exceeding in what we can do on our own right now instead of just looking at Jesus as a teacher. Another one, boldness. Some of you guys are trying to get boldness to stand up or to have a conversation, um, and you don't really feel like you have it in yourself to, to do it. Uh, you feel like you're always getting scared and cowering back and shrinking back in conversations. Do you need to just read Jesus' example and say, well, Jesus was bold. I'm going to be bold. Or rather, to see Jesus as the one who is broken for us and that Jesus makes us and God, that we are, com we are the righteousness of God, that when God looks at us, we are completely received and accepted, and God looks at us in the same way that he looks at Christ. And if God looks at you with adoration, then what does it matter what Tony thinks about you? What is, it doesn't matter if they accept me or reject me because I already have the acceptance of the one who is the true judge of the, of the world. And the more we look to Jesus just as a teacher and not as the broken savior of the world, we won't be able to truly find real life and nourishment. The last one is, you know, so many different people, when we talk about baptism, the biggest obstacle for a lot of people is, you know what, I'm just not, I'm not ready. And I'm like, well, it is good to approach it with a sobriety about what it means to pledge your faith in Jesus. I don't want people taking it flippantly. But underneath that, a lot of times what people are really saying is, I see how perfect Jesus' life is, and I know I can't live to that standard. So I'm going to wait a little bit until my life gets a little bit more right so I can like, be closer to who Jesus is. And you're missing the point of baptism altogether. Baptism is being buried with him in his death, identifying with Jesus, the broken Savior, and raised in new life, filled with his spirit so that the, the same thing we hear in Romans 8, 11, that um, the same power that raised Christ from the dead now will live in your mortal body and bring life to your mortal body. Getting baptized is not about you saying, I'm going to be better the next time. It's rather saying, I believe Jesus was broken for me to make me right with God. He invites us into a relationship with him that's personal, that's real life, and one that looks at him and sees, us as, sees him as our broken savior for, for us. Now, one of the ways that we nourish ourselves uh, in this truth is really, I mean, it's something that we've been pushing and hoping that you guys do more often. Uh, it's really picking up the, the Bible and, and reading it and ingesting it and feasting on who Jesus is so we can get a good and accurate picture and learn from him what it means to be in relationship with him. Uh, we, early on, we've challenged people to read through the Gospel of John, and if you have done it already or if you want to do it again, we would, nothing would make me happier than for you to pick up the Gospel of John and to read it and to learn from Jesus. Another way that we feast on who Jesus is and receive this bread of life is by remembering him through this act called communion. We do it often here at Renaissance, and it's our way of remembering him. Jesus said this, these words, as, as many words as this. He said, as often as you do this thing, remember me. I think Jesus says to remember him because he knows how prone we are to forget him and rely on ourselves again. He knows how quickly we are to forget that he was broken for our sins and rely on our own righteousness, so we beat ourselves up instead. So Jesus says to remember him, to remember him.